Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clutch. This is Marianne Russo. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clutch. The Coffee Clutch and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest's individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to start off tonight by just saying that, um, you know, tonight, as with every night, um, our hearts go out to those who are affected by the senseless tragedy of September 11th. And tonight is, today is the 10th anniversary of that horrible day. And um, we just want you to know you're all in our our hearts and in our prayers. Um, Tonight, I have a very special guest. Um, I bumped into Krista Hickey um, online. And um, she just really just amazed me because she is probably one of the most outstanding advocates that I know of for children and teens with mental illness. Um, She knows of what she speaks. She's a mother who's um, been there, who walks in our shoes. And um, she is here tonight, and she's going to give us a very open interview um, on, you know, what it's like to parent a child with mental illness and um, what every parent really needs to know. So welcome, Krista. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, you know, Krista, why don't you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and, um, you know, how you became an advocate. Sure. I think, uh, <laughs> well, uh, I think like many of us, I didn't plan this, but uh, I am a, I'm a mother of three, three children. My children are 16, 17, and 20 years old. Uh, and my uh, my middle son Timothy is 17, and um, when he was became apparent to us when he was fairly young that Timothy was, while physically developing on on target, there were some issues that were he was a little behind, and we went through several years of uh, talking to pediatricians who told us don't worry about it, to talking to pediatricians who uh, wanted certain testing done and went through several diagnoses. And uh, by the time Tim was eight years old, he was diagnosed with a mood disorder, uh, not otherwise specified, um, which I think my story mirrors a lot of people whose kids have been through this with multiple diagnoses. That diagnosis developed over time, and over uh, over the next uh, nine years, Tim had 12 inpatient hospitalizations. He's been yeah. in residential treatment for two years. And um, his diagnosis, as it stands now and has for the past several years, is schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type. So, which is a, which has been a, an interesting journey, needless to say. So, I, I could, oh, my heart goes out to you because, um, you know, that that just had to be devastating, you know. But you, you said that initially, I think you said at eight, age eight, um, he was um, diagnosed with a mood disorder, um, NOS, which is not otherwise specified. And I, I personally think that's a good thing because I don't think. Mm-hmm. 
that doctors, parents, diagnosticians could possibly know really where these kids are going to land at no, some, such a young age. You know, yeah, I, um, I agree. You, you spoke about him being behind. In, in what ways? Because you know, what I want to talk about is, you know, I think a lot of parents, especially first-time parents, but even parents that have other children, you know, wonder, as you say, is it a spirited child or is it something else? So, where were you see him? Where did you see him lagging? Well, I think the first thing we noticed was he didn't really, he didn't have a lot of language skills, um, which actually led to, believe it or not, before the emotional disorder, they actually thought he was on the autism spectrum, and one of the reasons was he didn't have very well, very well developed language skills. So you see him at his, you know, his first birthday, not really speaking any words yet, and by his second birthday, he was really only with a handful, four or five words, single words that he would know, and uh, we were concerned about that. He also seemed to have periods where he was. Um, beyond frustration or beyond what you think was like a terrible two type of tantrum, he really had kind of, you know, an uncontrollable rage. Um, you know, he'd pick up he'd pick up small pieces of furniture and throw them across the room and he would melt um, in public, at home, you know, not at certain times of the day, couldn't explain it to him, you know, talk it up to him being tired. Um, he seemed to be overly uh, giddy at some times where he, you know, it almost seemed like he was having a giggle fit. So, you know, in retrospect, it's very easy for me to take a look now and peg these two different things. But at the time, it was just a child who seemed to uh, not, not ever quite be comfortable in what he was doing and really lagging behind in communication skills. Is that common, the um, the delay in language? I, you know, parents that, that I know and I interact with and, and um, doctors that I've talked to have said it can kind of go one of both ways, especially with children with a psychotic or a thought disorder, and that is either they have exquisite language skills, meaning they actually start talking even before they walk, um, and then there are the flip side, where the ones who really have a problem processing language, um, more so than speaking it, the problem is taking it in, which which leads to a delay in speech. And we think for Timothy that was probably the issue. Um, so I've seen it go both ways. Usually, it's it's rare it's rare that they develop uh, their linguistic skills develop normally. Either they're incredibly advanced or incredibly behind. Well, you know, and, and it's, it really is amazing that if you talk to any parent that has had a child with a severe mental illness, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's across the board. There were such early signs. I mean, from infancy, the, the extreme startle reflex, mm-hmm. um, the stranger anxiety, um, as you're saying, the, the speech delay. I mean, it's just incredible that in hindsight, um, how evident it was, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's going to bring us also to, you know, that I, I it drives me crazy when, um, you know, parents tell me that, um, you know, family members or outsiders, you know, that, that, that they blame them. They feel it's the parenting. Yeah. You know, I mean, as if you don't have enough on your plate. Yeah, it's it's rough, especially when you have, yeah, they tell you, especially if it's a first child, an oldest child, or an only child, a lot of times, you know, I'll hear that they, they worry about the parenting you know, Timothy was our second child. I have three, and um, even though my our oldest child, our oldest son is very, he's complete opposite. He's very verbal, very social, very neurotypical. He, um, the contrast for us was what was so startling. And the other thing I think is difficult is a lot of times, even when children are very young, doctors don't think about, they don't even process the idea of mental illness in young children. So we got a lot of, I mean, my, the thing that stands out most in my mind is the doctor who told us, oh, don't worry about him not speaking and all these, you know, and him being frustrated about the speech. 
he's got an older brother who talks for him. That's what he kind of related it to. So, yeah, I was 28 years old when Tim was born. I didn't know any better. (laughs) So, you know, we, uh, you know, and that's the other thing, too. We tend to all think of what a doctor says is gospel. And, you know, we find now that, uh, you know, back then it was a little more difficult. I couldn't go on the Internet and do a search. But, uh, oh, I know. We, real... we we did this together. We started on this journey around the same time, and there were, there really yeah. was nothing out there. Uh-huh. Well, you know, and that's why I, I say, you know, there's no better resource for a parent than one who's been there. Um, absolutely. You know, you had um, you had said that your son um, has schizoaffective with uh, bipolar type. That's a very severe um, mental illness. So, right. can you tell us what that is, and? I think when people are hearing that, they're thinking schizophrenia, which it is not. So why don't you explain the difference? Right. Well, it's sort of, I mean, I think the the, the simplest way to break it down is to say it's got elements of both schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So it's both a thought disorder, like schizophrenia, and a mood disorder, like bipolar. So Timothy has um, mood cycles, like uh, are very common with people with bipolar disorder, where he has bouts of depression and bouts of mania. But throughout that, he also has, and this is not dependent on mood, throughout that, he also has hallucinations. His, his hallucinations are more uh, oral uh, oral hearing um, than they are visual. Um, it's very common, I've found, from parents to have small children have visual hallucinations, and actually they tend to migrate to auditory hallucinations when they get older. older. Um, the delusional thinking, you know, thinking that people are out to get you, paranoia, for example, is delusional thinking. And disorganized thought and speech, so which also kind of leads to that communication issue. You sound like you're talking gibberish because that's what's in your head. Kind of makes right. it difficult for you to process language. So it's a, uh, it's kind of you know all the fun of all the, <laughs> of of all the other mental health issues kind of rolled into one. How did you hold it together, Krissa? I mean, really, as I'm listening to you, my my heart is aching because I just can't imagine. Um, you know, this this must have just been such a shock to you um, to have a, a child so, um, you know, so affected. You know, how did you get through this? Well, it was, you know, for us it was an, an evolution. So, you know, when you first hear that, I, I remember when the first time a, our therapist sat us down and said that Timothy needed to be hospitalized, um, I, it didn't penetrate. And I think, you know, this is another thing we might want to talk about is doctors really have this hesitation to really diagnose children. They, they don't want to label them for life, but I had a doctor trying to soft-pedal to me that Timothy had some kind of mood problem. And um, it's it, it was difficult. We knew that Timothy had some special needs before that, so the idea of him having um, some kind of mental mental illness was very jarring, and I didn't take it well. <laughs> I uh, The first hospitalization he was in when a doctor told us that he thought he might have schizophrenia, I told the doctor he was crazy. Right. I said, I don't, I don't know how you tell me that, you know, he was he was 10, not quite 11 at the time. How do you tell me a 10-year-old has schizophrenia? Just not, I mean, that's not what we've been told. That if you're, we've heard that people have schizophrenia developed in their late teens and early 20s, and, you know, here was my 10-year-old kid. It's and, such a misconception, um, yeah. It, it really is, and there really is very little, you know, very little resource for parents out there that are that are struggling with this. I mean, it's a small, but... But it's a small population. I mean, childhood onset schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder is so rare that it's, if there wasn't already meds for it, it would be considered an orphan disease. So um, it's much it's much rarer than childhood onset depression or bipolar disorder. But um, 
it, I didn't take it well. Like I said, I, I really told the doctor he was he was crazy. But as Tim evolved and as we found doctors that were willing to work with us rather than talk at us um, and learned, and, you know, found some organizations, like you said, where I had other parents who knew what I was going through. Um, it, I can't say it got easier to take, but it, it became it became easier for us to manage, I think, as a family. That and the yeah, fact I, that I have very, you know, I'm very, I'm very lucky in that, unlike a lot of parents with special needs kids, I have a very uh, supportive and very loving husband who's really a partner with, in this. It really makes such a difference. You know, it really, it really does. does. You know, and I, t- I tell the story, you know, you were talking about, um, you know, going to these groups. Um, you know, I can remember when the realization, um, you know, my daughter had pandas, um, you know, and I, I first thing I did yeah. was get the books and reading about Tourette's and reading about OCD. And I can just remember having a complete just breakdown, just letting it all out. And I can remember, we used to call it the snuggle couch. We had this huge couch. And I just remember sitting in that chair and just not being able to get up. And I just cried for days. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, but you, you find the strength somehow. And I actually one day said, woke up and said, throw it out. Throw that chair out. It just makes me have bad memories. And you just, you know, you move on. Um, <clears throat> you know, what you were saying, that it's so rare. But I think that even though it's rare to get the diagnosis at that age, I think that there, you know, it. I don't think that people just one day wake up with this type of a disorder. I think That's there a are good signs. Point. That's a you good point. I mean? And there are some... Yeah, and there are some some people that have written some excellent, I mean, some excellent books. You know, I don't, you know, I'm not affiliated with any of these people, but you know, one of the books that really got to me was Ellen Sachs wrote a book. She's a she's a PhD level doctor um, about it's called The Center Cannot Hold, and it's about her developing um, schizophrenia um, mm-hmm. in college. But it really does talk about the early markers. She does talk about the early markers of things that happened to her younger in life that really were, in hindsight, were precursors to that. So I agree that the symptoms are there, and a lot of research is starting to show that, but the symptoms are there much earlier. Right. I, you know, I interviewed Susan um, Yuen, who um, wrote um, My Schizophrenic Mind, and uh, the same yeah. thing, you know, looking back. Um, you know, what what would you say are some red, red flags? If, if a parent is out there and they have a child, and the child obviously has behavioral issues or seems to be um, not related um, and, but it doesn't seem like autism. You know, what are some red flags parents should look for that should make them seek the um, evaluation of a professional? Uh, I think uh, I think for us, really, the, the behaviors were things that were beyond what a normal uh, what a normal child, even what we would consider a spirited child. And you know, that was the first book I read. I remember when I was worried about this was the spirited child. Things right. that are normal beyond a child who has a very strong will. So. Um, you know, Timothy had a very high, he still does, has a very high flight response. Uh, mm-hmm. He would literally, he would run out of a classroom in kindergarten, and I don't mean out of just the class, he'd run out of school in the middle of town. That's not usual for a five-year-old. Uh, right. He was he was very, you know, children that are very easily uh, agitated. Um, you know, not the normal, I'm going to throw a tantrum because I don't get my way agitation, but literally uncontrollable rage. And... I think whenever a child has a has a swing like that, you not only uncontrollable rage, but really uncontrollable euphoria, not sleeping for days, not needing to sleep for days. Timothy did that as young as four, right. and I think these are these are things that, in hindsight, anytime your child has something that looks like the absolute extreme end of an emotion, that would be cause for concern. Um, and you know, there's also, that, that 
yeah, I call it the dark look. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost oh, like the facial features change, <laughs> the, the eyes yeah. change. Yeah, you know, it's something that, um, you know, especially, you know, if you have other children, um, I mean, it's just something completely, you know, off the charts. Right. I think for schizophrenia it's a little harder, too. I mean, I, I know that if you, I look back at this and other parents, but I know it's difficult to differentiate between a child who has an imaginary friend or a very active imagination and, and psychosis. Right. But when children start have fears about things that they can see and other people can't, and I mean fear to the point of you look at their face and there's sheer terror, um, and it's something that's repeated, that's something that I would probably be concerned about. I, I do want to say on the flip side, though, I would also be concerned if you ever do go to a doctor I would be highly concerned with the doctor, as you kind of alluded to earlier, that is willing to diagnose your child after a single visit. So oh, absolutely. I, I, think it's, I think it's okay. It's great to be concerned, and it's great to go out and, and ask questions. And if you ask questions from someone and they say, you know what, it doesn't look like it, but let's watch it, that sounds like the right doctor for me. Right. And, you know, I, I was very, very fortunate early in my journey because my daughter was four also um, when she um, started with the pandas and then, you know, led to the OCD and anxiety disorder. Um, but I was very fortunate to have um, the first doctor I dealt with, um, you know, when I wanted to know, well, what is her diagnosis? What does she have? And I remember, you know, being told it depends on what purpose. If you're looking for the reason of insurance or accommodations at school, then I would give this diagnosis. But in reality, there is no possible way to know at four years old, seven years old, eight years old, what a diagnosis, what this is going to evolve into. And that's important for parents to understand, which is why I say all the time, you treat the symptoms. Um, Whether you treat medication or therapies, you treat the symptoms. You don't focus on the diagnosis. But in a situation like yours with your son that's had multiple um, hospitalizations, you know, you do treat the disorders. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that you have other children. I have other yes. children. It's very difficult. And, you know, I often worry more about the, um, and I hate the word, unaffected siblings. Yeah. Um, because, you know, what they go through, it's just very difficult. So, you know, um, you know, how do parents find that balance? That's a great question. You know, I was telling someone recently that uh, my oldest is, tw- is almost 21. He'll be 21 next month and... Uh, He's overseas right now doing an internship. He's in college, and, uh, you know, he's a great kid, and and uh, I completely miss his seniors. And, I mean, Timothy was very was having a very difficult time. He was complete, very unstable, very med-resistant throughout from the time he was about, you know, about 11. Um, we were resistant to meds, and then he was med-resistant, so it's kind of a joke. But, right. Um, you know, throughout all the way until he was about, well, he went into residential treatment at 15, so he was very, very unstable and med resistant. And his brother, who's three and a half years older than him, was in high school. And, uh, you know, I, I never made it. He marched the marching band for four years. I never saw it. Right. And he was on the track team, and I never made a meet. And I live with incredible guilt about that. And um, I'm I'm lucky in that he's a very... I know that for lots of people, I've heard adults of people who have siblings with mental illness that um, there's a certain amount of resentment at not having that, but there's also a lot of, I've seen a lot of kids, and I see it in my own kid, he's an incredibly compassionate human being. Well, you and, know, it's funny, I just wrote down those two words before you said them, resentment and compassion, yeah. because I did, um, because as you were speaking, because, you know, I think you, 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 they have to have both. 
Yeah, I mean, there has to be a resentment towards the attention to this child. There has to be a resentment for the chaotic, um, you know, situation that's in the house. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but you always hope that there's going to be some compassion, um, you know, for, for what they're seeing, you know, the sibling go through, because it, it's really, it's very hard on them. And, you know, look how hard it was on you. And it's another oh, reason why it's so important to have, um, you know, a partner that's supportive so that, you know, at least somebody can, uh, be home and somebody can go to functions. Exactly. So that was, well, and we, you know, we did a lot of that. And I was going to say, too, the other thing to be careful with other siblings is, you know, my oldest became, he became very independent at a younger age. My youngest, you know, when, when Timothy finally went to residential, she was diagnosed with PTSD. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to oh, live in a absolutely. house like that. So, you know, you forget about the fact I've got one, you know, I've got one that we're taking the therapy appointments, taking the doctor appointments, taking that, you know, taking meds, doing other things, and one, it's it's really important to make sure that everyone has that outlet to be able to talk about. <coughs> Excuse me. If she had had, you know, if I had been more on the ball, <laughs> she would have been in therapy a lot earlier than than you know the last year Tim was Tim was at home because she needed an outlet to be able to process as well. <clears throat> oh, I hear you on that one. Yeah, you know, and I say that all the time that you know I think the so you know for a lot of parents it's like oh they're fine they're fine they're fine but you know all of a sudden one day they're not so fine and you right. know this has to affect them so you know the si- the siblings really get lost in the shuffle <coughs> excuse me a lot of the times um you know I wanted to talk a little bit about um I mean let's face it if the parent isn't you know, I, I, you can't even say whole because you, you've just lost a part of yourself when this happens to you. But, um, you know, for a parent to be strong, they need support. Mm-hmm. And I, I know I talk all the time about the isolation, and I did it myself. You isolate yourself. You're just so busy trying to find, um, you know, the answers and to try to find that, you know, magic bullet um, and to not have to explain to people that you isolate yourself. So can you just explain why that is such a mistake? And we all do it, um, you know, and where they can find help. We we all do it. I think I think you hit on a lot of it. I think a lot of it was... Um, you know, I don't. I, I don't know how I would explain. How do I explain to the neighbors when my son, in the middle of winter, we live in Chicago, so in the middle of winter at night, is running down the street screaming, barefoot, no shirt on. You know, I just, this is the kind of thing that forces pe- people to isolate. You no know, families to isolate themselves, and um, it's so important. Uh, I did a blog post recently about how important it is, even more so than finding a good therapist. I think it's finding peer support and. There's lots of places to find it. Um, some people prefer uh, face-to-face peer support. I'm uh, I'm the kind of person where I'm well. I'm the working parent in our family. My husband's actually the stay-at-home parent, so uh, I do a lot of my support over the internet. Um, there's great organizations out there. NAMI, of course, uh, is the National mm-hmm. uh, Alliance on Mental Illness has fabulous resources for families, particularly um, face-to-face support at local. They've got over 500 chapters around the country. Um, you can go to NAMI.org and, and find a local one near you to find to find a, a group you can go to. Uh, early on, I, I mean, bipolar foundation. I was say, early on, I managed to find yeah. Early on, I managed to find the Child and Adolescent Bipolar Foundation, which is at bpkids.org, which has a whole host of different online support groups for parents. And which for are, the teens. Uh, yeah, for the teens, they do. They have their own website for teens as well. It's called depressedteens.org. Um, NAMI actually has a teen website as well. It's called The Strength of Us. Uh, it's very good, um, but CABF was was 
a great place for me to go. You know, when I talk about something, I say, okay, you're all going to think this is weird, and they kind of, you know, give me this virtual giggle and say, are you kidding? We've all been there. Right. So, it, you know, it's a it's a great place to go and be able to do anything from ask advice, ask questions, and even just vent. When I mean, because everybody gets frustrated. So, right. um, yeah, I, I love CBS so much. I actually I actually moderate co-moderate two of the groups there now. So, um, oh, they are absolutely outstanding. Yeah, they're a good organization. And there's Flip Switch too, right? Flip Switch is a is a teen side of CABF. So Flip mm-hmm. Switch Teen uh, does podcasts, and uh, they have a pretty heavy Twitter presence as well um, for teenagers. There is also, I mean, there's even chat as well. They do a they do an online chat as well at the website for both teens and adults. That's that, that's great. I have to actually stop promoting that. I didn't know they had that. Yeah. Um, so now you know. Okay, as if you don't have enough on your plate. You have uh, you're devastated with the diagnosis. You're devastated with the hospitalizations. Um, you know your child is is in. I'm not talking about you particularly. I'm mean, listeners too that are that are going through this, and you still have to educate these children. Right. So um, and it's so you know there's nothing worse than invisible disability. You know really. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're trying to fight for services. I mean, some of us are very fortunate, and they just, you know, they offer us things we don't even know or exist. And for others, they have to fight for everything. So right. what would an IEP and a 504 designation look like? And where can a parent go um, to find their rights? Um, aside from the, from our new show, <laughs> your special right. on rights, which, I mean, that's probably one of the best places. But, you know, right. where can people go? Um, and, and, you know, how, how do they fight for, for what their children need? I mean, I would assume that getting services for a child with a mental illness is very different than, you know, God forbid, cerebral palsy or something. Right. It is. And like you said, I think a lot of it is the, the, the invisibleness of the illness. And a lot of it is, too, that these kids have academically, they're not necessarily doing anything, you know, doing poorly. They're usually very bright. So what do you do with a kid who's actually very bright, but you're asking for special services for them? Um, and so you know, there's two different designations. Like you said, the 504 uh, and the IEP is a whole different process. The 504 designation is kind of a it's a um, otherwise health-impaired, basically, OHI, you hear sometimes OHI uh, indication, mm-hmm. that basically says, by law, according to disability law, the school has to be able to provide certain accommodations to a child with a disability, which is great if you have a child who needs an accommodation like, uh, you know, more time for homework or tests or it needs to be able to not take a first period because you have a very difficult time getting them out of bed when they're on, you know, 500 milligrams of Depakote at night. Um, <laughs> but uh, I personally prefer the IEP, the Individual Education Plan, because it's part of the federal IDEA law. It must be the accommodations that are um, and goals for the child must be documented and must be measured um, right. So it's really a con- it's really a contract with the school that says here's what we're going to do and here's what, when we here's what the success is defined as. The 504 designation doesn't have that. It, they, you know, it's a, absolutely and any child really needs to be classified. I mean, that's the I do, and, and you know, I hear a lot of parents say, you know, I tried to get an IEP. I, you know, I, I sent a letter to the school. I wanted my child to be tested for an IEP, and I was told that they couldn't didn't qualify because they were doing fine academically, which is absolutely 100%. It drives false. me out of my mind, I know. Absolutely false, yes. Yeah. So if you're looking for places for more information about your rights, I think um, your website has a lot of great information. My favorite for all is just school-based IEP and 504 is Rights Law, W-R-I-T-H-T. Mm-hmm. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, rightslaw.com is a fabulous website. 
The other thing I would say is, and I know a lot of, for a lot of us, we spend a lot of money on meds and therapy and shuttling kids around and, you know, having one parent not work. It's worth it if you're really having a school district that's very resistant to, to providing what your child by law has the rights to. It's hire an advocate. Absolutely. You can you can go to see it, you know, bpkids.org and look on your site, um, look on the site by your state for an advocate. It's worth a couple of hundred dollars to have someone who professionally knows how to talk to the school district. Because and knows one of the hard parts. Absolutely. Not only that, but the hard part for us parents is we tend to get emotionally involved, of course, because right. we're our kids. And it's harder for us to make a strong legal case with them when we're being emotional. So and and the whole the whole tone changes when when an advocate. You know, also, I think uh, we're going to run a little bit over airtime. Also, I think parents need to really start thinking out of the box Mm. because there are things that you can do for children, such as, like you said, there are medications that are very, very sedating. A lot of these children can't sleep, and they fall asleep at 3 o'clock in the morning, and they can't get up at 6.30. So, you know, half days is an option for these children. And the courses that they miss in the morning, the school district, it's obligated to home tutor them, where tutors will come to the house right. and tutor or them home, in those courses. Or do homeschool for those courses. A lot of a lot of the high schools now have a kind of almost a correspondence program for their continuation um, part of their per- curriculum. If there's two or three courses they can take through correspondence at home, as long as the parents are willing to monitor their progress, you know, make sure they're they're doing it. It's all done on the on the internet. That's also another option. I think. Right. I mean, some districts you know, don't even, have that. My, my district doesn't allow that, but my district sends right. tutors to uh, to your house. Um, right. But you know, there are a lot of things. You know, there are uh, vocational programs. Um, there are a lot of options for parents, but you have to ask for them. Oftentimes, you do it. You do, and even you know, we're hitting one now, which a lot of people don't realize. Timothy is technically in the, in the twelfth grade, um, but he's going to be part of the super senior program which we we had to kind of fight for. I mean, he's not ready to graduate and transition. You know, part of his IEP goals, which by law, they must include transition requirements, meaning that how he transitions out of school and is able to become an independent functioning adult, he's not going to be able to reach that in the next, you know, nine to ten months. So he's going to be a super senior because every school district that receives federal funds with a child on an IEP has to consider whether or not they 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 should be keeping them up until the day before their 22nd birthday. So Tim's going to be in school for a few more years, and he's actually fine with that because, you know, he likes his school and he's on a vocational track. And, um, you know, he's doing things that he's going to be doing things now that aren't technically academic, but, you know, they're things he needs to learn how to do. He needs to learn how to balance a checkbook and do a budget and show up to a job on time every right. day. It's, it's basic life skills. Yeah. Um, you know, that it just do not, they're not naturally acquired, and everybody thinks that that just applies to autism, and it does not. No, absolutely. Um, These kids with mental illness really have um, severe deficits in their social and their life skills. Absolutely. And again, we have to give them those tools. So, you know, I mean, what you're doing is just amazing. And, you know, what you're doing for other people is just, you know, I mean, like I said, there's no better resource than someone who's been there, and there's no other person better than you. Let me tell you, what you're doing is just incredible. Well, I appreciate that. I try. Like I said, I get lots. I get lots of emails, and I, I can't always come up with the answer, but I usually try and find one. So, so uh, I usually am. Well, you know, just giving a parent a, giving a parent a resource could just be, you know, the the one uh, little piece that that uh, gets them on the right road. But um, you know, I really appreciate you for joining us. Um, 
you know, I think any you've you know, I know you've said that this is a very rare disorder, but I think that there are a lot of parents out there that have really severely mentally ill children. And what I can say is that, you know, I know that a lot of these disorders follow into adulthood. I mean, they all do. Um, but you know, self-advocacy is probably one of the most important things that you can give a child with a severe mental illness. Absolutely. Um, we were talking about that before the show. <laughs> right. And, you know, you were saying how your son is compliant with his medications and how he is um, cooperative and collaborative in dealing with his doctors and his treatment and, you know, how he's feeling on different medications work. You know, how, how how does that, when does that really start? Because I know that kids, even at a very young age, can sense it coming when they're, when they're starting to go into a phase. Yeah. Um, so, you know, how do parents help teach them to self-advocate? Well, that's a good question. You know, I, you know, I wish I had a really foolproof answer to say that. All I can say is in our experience, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we've been very uh, vocal. I mean, you know, my son's name is Timothy, 17 years old. We live in Chicago. I mean, everybody knows who we are on the Internet and, and on my blog. People people understand who we are, and Timothy is very involved in that. So Timothy knows about the blog. Timothy actually has gone and done some speaking engagements at different NAMI um, uh, events where he talks about being a teenager with a mental illness. And he's very involved in wanting to help other kids like him because he knows he doesn't like he doesn't like the way he feels when he's not stable. And um, I think part of it was really being open to the fact that we're making the decision that for us this is just another diagnosis. If Tim had cancer, if Tim had diabetes, if Tim had cerebral palsy, we wouldn't be hiding it. And so we're not hiding about the fact that he has a, a neuro, you know a brain disorder. It's not. It's not a character flaw. It's. It's an illness. And Absolutely. by treating it, by treating it that way, it kind of took. It kind of took the self stigma away that a lot of families run into when they want to hide the fact that someone in the family has a mental illness. So it gave Tim the license to say, "Okay, I have a disease like other people have a disease, and I need to be treated." So um, it was hard. At not, don't get me wrong. At times, there are plenty of times where Tim has said, "I'm not taking my medication" when he was younger, but. T- with a little bit of maturity, and I think a lot of it is he's coming out of puberty now and we're hitting some more maturity. Um, he's really talking more with his doctor and saying, this is how I feel and this is what do you think about this and this is how I feel today. And it's been it's been a great experience to watch him take ownership of his own of, of his own person, not only his, his illness, but, you know, other things that he should be taking ownership of at 17. So um, I think really... A lot of it is if we take the stigma of mental illness and, you know, the thing that we all used to put in the closet and not want to talk about the relative who was a little strange, it's an illness like any other illness. And if we treat our children that way and they're not something we're ashamed of, even though, you know, it can be difficult to deal with at times, I really do think in our experience that was the decision that we made that made it so for Timothy it was okay for him to talk and, and advocate for himself. Yeah, that's what I say. Take mental. If you think of mental illness, take off the word mental. It's an illness. It's yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I I think that the way that we speak about it, the way that we feel about it, if we have any embarrassment toward it, you know, that's a a reflection in the child. I mean, the way that you speak about a disorder or you don't speak about the disorder really will have an effect on how the child feels about themselves. Oh, sure. So, um, you know, it's just it's really important for parents to just, you know, 
if you expect if you want people to accept your child and you want people to be aware of mental illness you know you you just have to explain to them that this is an illness like anybody else has um you know so how is your son doing now is he um um, he's, 17 he's, doing pretty he's, well. he's 17. <laughs> kind of scares me a little bit. He's 17. Um, he's doing well. He's actually he's been in residential, long-term residential treatment since he was 15, um, which is about an hour and a half away from our home. So we're lucky we see him um, at least usually about two weekends a month. Um, we either go up there and visit him for the day, or he comes home uh, for for the weekend. Um, which is great, but it's very it's a highly structured environment, which has been perfect for him as he's going through. Like I said, puberty can kind of a lot of times throw these kids into, as you can imagine, out of whack. <laughs> so um, it's been it's been great. He has a lot of um, he's learned a lot about himself and his illness. He's learned a lot about how to uh, all the coping skills he needs to be able to deal with the outside world. Because a lot of times too, as we isolate ourselves, our kids don't learn to deal with how do I deal with a bully at school or how do I deal with a traffic accident or how do I deal with not having enough change at the grocery store. He's learning these things. He goes out into the environment. He has a part-time job. Um, And he's, uh, he's doing pretty well. He's, you know, he's got his, his issues like everyone. I was, you know, he went through a period of some breakthrough psychosis a few weeks ago, but he talked to his doctor about it. They came up with a med plan they wanted to do to address it. They've they've adjusted it, and I've just been informed. I'm I'm kind of the the observer now in him in in his care, which which is good because you know I can't I can't be there to uh, be the one who takes all the notes for the doctor forever. One of these days he's he's you know he's going to be 40 years old, and I'm going to be really old. <laughs> so yeah, and that's what I was just thinking was: is there a plan for transitioning him back home or into independent living? You know, how does um, that work? Because you know I often speak about. <clears throat> The age of maturity. Right. Uh, the age of majority, I'm sorry. And, um, you know, I can't stress it enough that when the child turns 18, that there really needs to be something in writing that the parents do still have um, access. Um, yeah. We're actually debating. But, we're, there's several different options, and we're actually going through that right now, with that, especially with a special needs attorney. Um, you know, there's guardianship options, and then there's power right. of attorney options, and we're trying to decide which is the best one to give us to allow us to um, provide the support Timothy still needs because he still doesn't have that. You know, you kind of made a little slip there. He doesn't have the age of maturity yet. He's, you know, he may be the age of majority, but it's definitely not maturity. Right. Um, and that's there's so a very big difference. Exactly. Very big difference. So we want to be able to protect him with that. You know, and you know, this I, isn't just for for catastrophic type of mental illnesses. No. This is for the teen that suffered from depression. This is from the teen that, you know, has had, you know, a few years of stability but has some history of instability. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you And, this, you know, it's you know, so important because, you know, God forbid that kid is 18 yeah. years old and is suicidal or has a psychotic break and they need That's to be fair. hospitalized. Yeah. The parent, you, you no longer have rights. No, so, and I'll know, tell you what, it's, it's what, our, what our attorney. Well, yeah, I'll tell you what our attorney told us is that my oldest one, like I said, is almost 21. I have a medical power of attorney for him, and this is you know in case he becomes incapacitated. You know, don't call me paranoid or anything, but you know he's prime at the right age where if he's going to develop schizophrenia, it's going to be now. <laughs> right. So right. you know, or even if he's you know he lives overseas, so if he has some kind of medical injury, if he's in a car accident over there. Yeah. I need them to be able to talk to me, and the only way for me to do that is with a medical power of attorney. So 
it's actually, our, our lawyer says, it's probably good for any child, especially if they're going away to college, to have Absolutely. them just find a regular, you know, a, a durable, you know, a medical power of attorney that says in case they're incapacitated that you have rights. So that being the case, too, I'll tell you one thing it also does is now that Timothy's getting ready to come to that age, it's going to make it a lot more routine and normal for him to sign it. It's not that I'm defective and I still need mom and dad to be my parent. It's that this is what you do when you become 18. Right, and so I, you takes, know, all, as you're saying, all parents should have it. But you know, yeah. what, what needs to be understood is that you, when when your child is being hospitalized, especially if this isn't ha- hasn't been an ongoing problem, um, you know, they're not in the most um, you know clear-headed, not the no. most rational of thinking. Um, so you know, please, if you have a child, a teen with mental illness, when they turn 18, you can just get a regular power of attorney, uh, a minimum, form, yeah. and um, that's yeah, exactly. And you know, it's going to go a long way. Um, if the child decides that they don't want you involved in the care, that will go a long way with the hospitals. So, um, again, Krista, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for everything you do. And, um, yeah, and, you know, we probably, we wrote, I wrote today about, um, you know, my attachment to um, my memories of September 11th, and I had written that, um, you know, my father was the first tenant in um, yeah. World Trade Center, the one World Trade Center. And I remember being, you know, brought there, and the building was empty, and, you know, it's just becoming like my little playground over the years. And it wound up, you were running down the halls with me. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, we were a little bit later, about a year about a year later. But I, I, it's just amazing the, uh, the, the, uh, what a small world it actually is. Yeah, I remember running Absolutely. around uh, running around there in the summer myself as a child. My father worked in Tower One. So. Yeah, I'm sure we, we did pass each other's cross. Uh, oh. <laughs> small world. Um, again, thank you for joining us. And um, next... Next week, um, we have on um, Turnaround. Uh, Turnaround is a program that is just incredible. It is a video um, program um, for children, young children, to overcome anxiety. And um, we're actually going to have a giveaway. We're going to be giving a program away to one of our listeners. So join us next week. Thank you again. Um, As we end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. Thank you for joining us tonight on The Coffee Clutch.